Let me say good morning to everyone. We're thankful to God for his blessings. I believe a lot of lives have been changed over this weekend. And we're very grateful to God for that. God deserves all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. All of his servants are simply that, servants. And the Bible says in Luke, the 17th chapter, from verses 9 and 10, that when a servant does the job that he is called to do, that he is to say, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done that which our Lord has told us to do. Man receives no glory. God gets all the glory. We're going to have a very important meditation this morning, which I've entitled, God, Save Our Children. Save Our Children. As much as you're able to, I'm going to invite you to please kneel with me as we approach the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity to come before you on this beautiful morning here in the mountains where we can breathe in that pure, fresh air and we can feel the presence of your spirit. We thank you, dear God, for all things that have transpired today. We praise you for the many victories that have taken place in many homes. And Father, as we now deal with this topic, God, save our children. Lord, we just pray that you'll please pour out your spirit in double portions. Open our eyes, Father, and help us to behold wondrous things out of your word. Speak to our hearts in a very marked manner and reveal unto us your precious plan, of not just simply how you want to save humanity, but that you even have in a very special way the youth on your mind. Keep us, dear God, we pray. And thank you for hearing this prayer, for we ask it with the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we obviously have here at this uh, Southwest GYC put together the title you know, if the Lord builds the house, you know, we understand that this is a very important topic about restoring the home. My hope and my prayer is that in every branch of the blessed worldwide body of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that we will take to heart this topic and that this will become the theme over and over and over again for the remainder of our conferences of the several YCs that I have been to personally, I have not seen such a tremendous effect like what I've seen take place here. And I'm serious about that. God has been giving some serious victories and breakthroughs. And I just cannot thank God enough for that. You see, when we talk about the Lord building the house, I want you to turn to Psalm 127 with me because that's where it's from. And you see that in Psalm 127... We're going to look at verse 1, which is the theme of this uh, weekend that we've had together. But I want you to see this, Psalm 127 and verse 1. And I want you to capture the vision of what God is saying as we consider verse 1. 
The Bible says in Psalm 127 and verse 1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. The Bible is very clear that it is not enough to establish a house, but the Lord must be the one that is establishing that house. That's very clear. And this is why we know that in everything that we do in the household, we must do it in God's order. Once we introduce our own thoughts, our own ideas, and our own concepts into our households, brothers and sisters, it is as if we just told all the demons in hell to come right inside of our homes. God wants to make it clear that our homes are to be governed by him. Your home is not your home. My home is not my home. It is the Lord that owns that home. He is the one that must make up all the rules and the counsels and the understanding. Amen? Amen? But I want you to see this because as he also says that he is the one that must build the house, and if it is not built by him, it is obviously done in vain, I want you to look at what specifically was on his mind when he was talking about building of that house. It's found in verse 3. The Bible says in Psalm 127 and verse 3, it goes on to now talk about children. And it says, lo, what? Children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. So it's interesting that while God was talking about the importance of him being the one that builds the house, there was something so important on the mind of God that when he downloaded it to David's mind, as this was being written, he had an important focus on children. And notice that he says in verse 3, children are in heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And then in verse 4, he gives us a nice picture. It says as what? Arrows are in the hands of a mighty man. It says so are children of the youth. Did you know that's a power pack verse? I want you to think about this. If I was standing before you and I had a bow in my hand and I pulled that string back and aimed it right at your face. How many of you by the raise of hands would be afraid of me? You know what that means right now to every one of you who raised your hands? You were not listening. Can I tell you why? I said, if I have a bow in my hand, and if I pulled back the string and aimed it at you, how many of you would be afraid? What in the world are you afraid of a bow for? A bow is powerless, brothers and sisters. A bow has no power in and of itself. Is that right? All you're going to do is pull back the string and it's just going to make a noise when I let it go. That's it. It does no damage. Did God say as bows are in the hands of a mighty man? No, God said as what? Arrows are. Now, let's do that scenario again. If I had a bow in my hand, but I had a razor sharp arrow. And I want you to imagine me about five times the size that I am right now, pure muscle. The reason why is because the Bible says, as arrows are not in the, common, in, in the hands of a common man. It says, as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man. So I want you to imagine someone who is big, muscular, very strong, and he takes out that razor-sharp arrow, and he puts it in the bow, and with his biceps, he pulls it back, and now aims it at your head. Now how many of us are afraid? Do you get it? The Bible says, as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Now, are arrows an attack weapon or are arrows a defense weapon? Arrows are an attack weapon. It's an assault weapon. When you think of a defense weapon, we think of shields. When you think of attack weapons, you think of arrows. It is a solemn thing to think that God says, when I look at young people, I see them as my attack weapons against the devil and his kingdom. 
it makes perfect sense why we have to say, God, save our children. Because even Satan sees something that we can't see. If we could understand what a young person is in the hands of the master. Brothers and sisters, God says that I can use those young people and they will literally assault the devil and his kingdom. You know, I think about the fact that our church right now is in great need of revival and reformation. Now, we talked about it before. Remember, something that needs to be revived is something that obviously has stopped breathing. There's there's a slowdown of the breathing capacity and therefore it needs to be revived so it can breathe again. Is that right? I remember reading Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, page 415. And it says in Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, page 415, it says, prosecute the work. Gather together the young men and the young women in our churches. And it says, combine the medical missionary work with the proclamation of the third angel's message. And it says, teach them to make regular organized effort to lift the churches out of the dead level into which they have fallen and have remained for years. It says, send these workers into the churches. Who are these workers? Young men and young women. What's combined? Medical missionary work and the proclamation of the third angel's message. It says, make regular organized effort. It says, go and visit each family and every individual. And it says, and see if the breath of life will not quickly return to these churches. Young people are part of the solution to the revival and reformation that is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. No wonder Satan attacks the youth. No wonder. And brothers and sisters, things have gotten so bad. Things have gotten so bad that Timothy, Paul pointed it out as we read 2 Timothy chapter 3. Go there with me now. 2 Timothy, the third chapter. Notice what the Bible says. Consider this. Consider this. In 2 Timothy, the third chapter, I want you to capture the vision of what God gave to his servant Paul. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we know that what Timothy is talking about here is dealing with the church. We know this, especially because of verse 5. But notice, it says in verse 1, this know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. What kind of times? Perilous Perilous times. It says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. And what's that next thing on the list? Disobedient unto parents. Now, that is one of the signs of the last days. Now, the reason why I said I know that this is not just referring to the world, but it's referring to the church is because notice what it says in verse 5. After Paul goes through the laundry list of all these horrific sins that are taking place in the last days, it says something very important in verse 5. It says in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The unfortunate reality is that wherever this All these horrible sins are taking place in verses 1 to 4. In verse 5, it gives us a clue where it's happening. It's happening in a place where there's a form of godliness. Do you find forms of godliness when you go down the streets of L.A.? No. Do you find a form of godliness when you go down the streets of San Francisco? How about the streets of Chicago? How about the streets of New York? How about the streets of Atlanta? Brothers and sisters, there is no form of godliness. The world is sinful and they're bold about it. There's only one place that you can go where there's a form of godliness, but a denial of power. And that's the church. That's the church. 
And the Bible says that there is an indicator that in the last days, the church is going to become in such a horrific condition that sin is going to abound, brothers and sisters, more than God's grace by choice. And one of those signs was there would be a disobedience to parents. You know, the Bible says that when a child is to honor their father and mother, it says that thy days may be long upon the land. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 and verse 1, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And that word right actually in the root in the Greek comes from the word righteousness. God in the third angel's message, the third angel's message is a message of righteousness by faith in verity. And what's happening is we have a generation of youth in the last days who are so disobedient, brothers and sisters, and they are forfeiting the experience of righteousness by faith. And they will not be counted amongst those that Jesus is going to say, let him that is holy be holy still. Let him that is righteous be righteous still. God, save our children. We have a generation of young people today, brothers and sisters, that are flat out rebellious. And they are against God and his truth and against their parents and against anything that seems to be righteous. And the question is, does God have a plan on how he's going to save our children? Go to the book with me of Isaiah, the 49th chapter. In Isaiah, the 49th chapter, we find God giving us a promise that I believe every parent by the grace of God, can claim today. I want you to see that God says, Mother, Father, have no fear. Have no fear. God says in Isaiah, the 49th chapter, in the 25th verse, he says, But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee. And God says, and I will save thy children. Brothers and sisters, this is a parent's hope. I know that we have crisis going on in Adventist homes today. I know that there's crisis happening all around us. There are children that are wayward. There are children that are disobedient. There are children that are rebellious. And we're saying, Lord, save our children. And God says, I will. But God says, but I'm going to need your cooperation. You see, brothers and sisters, while we do see that we are in a very tough state and we are in a very serious problem, I want you to understand that while it is true that sin does abound, God says, if we accept it, his grace will much more abound. God's grace does not abound more simply arbitrarily. It comes and it abounds more as a result of cooperation. There's no way that a mother or father can say, Lord, save my child, while at the same time, they're going to continue business as usual. God says, I will never save anybody like that. If there's going to be salvation that is going to come to that child, if there's going to be salvation that's going to come to those children, God says, I can do it, but it, go, it is going to require cooperation. Now, there are several things that God has laid out to show us how he can save our children. God promises I'm going to do it. I remember this one time I went to a school. It was one of our schools, and there was a, it was a school that, that on the outside, it looked like they really were taking a stand for present truth. I mean, really, it was just like there was a lot of external things that were shown 
that was, you know, if you looked at it, you would say, man, this, 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 this school is like a blueprint school, you know? But I remember I gave a message on a Friday night, and when I gave that message, it was like the Spirit of God just came down with great force. And people's hearts were convicted, and I, and I decided to stay by afterwards. I said, you know what? If anybody feels the need for prayer, I'll be over here on the side. Now, I'll be honest with you. I thought maybe five, ten people would come on the side and go ahead, and, and we would pray together and spend a few moments. It was over 50 to 60 people who stayed aside. We were on our knees crying and praying for two hours, one by one. And what, what, what amazed me most was both staff and student is that when we would pray, it was almost a resounding consensus that everyone was saying, I don't know Jesus. Are you hearing what I'm saying? On the outside, you saw dress reform. When you went to the tables, you never had to ask, is there any vinegar in this? Is there any chocolate? The, 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 the diet was absolutely perfect. But on the inside, many of those individuals were hollow, and it was like dead men's bones. Now, I don't say that to minimize reforms. I firmly believe in reforms. There's no way you can listen to anything I preach and think that I don't believe in reforms. But brothers and sisters, I just believe that revival has to come before reformation. There got to be a love for Jesus. There has to be a dedication to Christ first. And then from that, all of your I got to's become I get to's. It's no longer I got to dress right, I get to dress right. It's not I got to eat right, I get to eat right. All of the I got to's turn into I get to's when Jesus is in the center of the heart. Well, here it is that one of the things I had to reassure every single one of them is I said, you know, they, they were saying I'm scared for my mother, my father, my children. And I said, listen, none of you can out love God. God loves your family, your children, more than you ever could. God loves my children more than I ever could love them. God is love, the Bible says. Therefore, God says, listen, I'm already on my job. I already said I'm going to do everything I can to make sure your child is saved. But God says, but Dwayne Lemon, I need your cooperation because you can become a distracting force to my process. And therefore, we're going to begin our instructional councils. From this point forward in our study, we're going to go ahead and look at the instructional councils of God as it relates first to the parents and those who have parental authority. In other words, you may not be a parent, but you may have a parental-like authority. Are you following me? There are mothers in Israel. Amen? There are fathers in Israel. I love the point that Pastor Kiela brought out last night to that single mother that, hey, the elders in the church are supposed to be like father figures. So whether you're single or not, you are a parent. Are you following me? We have that influence on individuals. So therefore, God's counsel is very plain. Now, the first thing we want to make sure that we do, this especially goes to the parents, but this can also be applied to those who have parental authority over individuals, is I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. This is very important if we're going to start getting on the road to success. The Bible says in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, when you get there, please say amen. amen. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible gives beautiful instruction that helps us understand how we can make sure that we can work with God, cooperate with him while he is on his mission to save our children. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, notice what it says in verse 31. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 31, it says, and let how much? It says, and let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be what? Put away from you with all malice. And notice what it says in verse 32. And be ye 
kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Brothers and sisters, if we want to see our children saved, we must understand that God says you need to remove that bitterness, that anger, that resentment. You need to open up the heart and say, Jesus, I need you to be a lamb of God and take away this sin from my heart. The reason why is because Adventist Home, page 16, tells us that when the father and mother harbor difference against one another, the children partake of the same spirit. This is why we have no time in this earth's history to go home and become a bunch of hypocrites. You know what another word for hypocrite is? Actor. God is not asking husbands and wives to go home and harbor stuff in their hearts while at the same time they know that they have a responsibility to be a light to the children that make up that home. We must get to a point that we can open up the heart and say, Lord, I am angry, I am bitter, I am resentful, but I know that you have power to take these things away from my heart and to replace it with kindness, love, and compassion. Why? Because as I look at what you did for me, I believe that I can demonstrate this towards the offending spouse. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. One of the great reasons why a lot of young people have so many problems in their heart and in their minds and in their homes is because of the examples that they are beholding through their parents. You will find that Psalms, the 78th division, talks about it. It brings it out very clearly that many of the sins that Israel fell into was because of the examples of the fathers that were set before them. There's an old commercial. Now, some of you are fairly young. You probably don't remember this, but I remember this when I was younger. And I remember being probably 12 years old, and there was this commercial. They showed a young boy, and he was smoking marijuana. It's an old commercial. And he was smoking marijuana, and eventually the father, he comes in the room, and he sees a child doing that, and he says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Where did you get this from? And, you know, the child's just embarrassed, and the father's like, what are you doing? Where did you get this from? And all these things. And then eventually the child gets an opportunity to speak. The father says, why are you doing this? And the son said, I learned it from watching you. And the commercial just shows the father just stand back in awe, and he's saying, wow. And the commercial just begins to admonish parents to be a consistent example before their children. Brothers and sisters, many of the behaviors that we see in our youth, if we're honest with ourselves, they learned it from watching us. They learned it from what they were beholding in mommy and daddy. And now what has happened is we are reaping the whirlwind. But God says, I have a solution. God says, you need to put away the differences. Putting away differences is different from setting aside differences. Setting aside differences is called ecumenism. That's why we got the ecumenical movements today. It's a whole bunch of individuals that said, listen, we still believe what we believe in our hearts, but we will set it aside so we can link up together for a more common goal, ultimately so Satan can fulfill his purpose. That's ecumenism. That is not what God is telling us to do, to come home and we just say, hello, dear, hello, husband. But, all of us, but we know that the anger is still there in the heart. God says that's setting aside differences. That is the spirit of ecumenism. God says that's not what I want my people. God says that I want them to put it away. You know what happens when something's put away? It's gone. God says, this is what I want to do. This is what happened in that upper room experience in the book of Acts. They had a time where they were putting away differences, not setting them aside. And this is why we have to come face to face with our issues and say, Lord, we need you to come and give us power on how we can be reconciled over these things that is causing bitterness, anger, resentment, 
malice, and all these other things. The Bible will never tell us to do something without God enabling us to do it. All God's biddings are his enablings. If we want to see our children saved, God says, let all bitterness, let all malice, let all these things be put away. Not set aside, put away. God is not asking you to be actors. God says, I want you to be genuine and to let me in your heart and put these things away. I love that wonderful prayer in Christ Object Lessons 159. Some of you have heard it. It says that no one can overcome self by themselves. And it says, and when they understand this, it says the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me to a holy atmosphere where the rich currents of thy love can flow through my soul. Brothers and sisters, make that your prayer. You'll find that God will get rid of all that bitterness. Amen. There's another instruction that God says, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. God says, I can save the children. God says, I never have a problem saving children. God says, I'm the master at it. God knows how to save people, even in the most degrading situations. But God says, my issue is that I don't have enough cooperation from my people. That's God's challenge right now. But it doesn't have to be from this day forward. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, notice what it says in verse 21. Once we resolve in our hearts to follow God and let his will and his ways be done in our hearts and in our lives, the Bible says another principle that we would do well to consider. In Romans 2 and verse 21, the Bible says, Thou, therefore, which teachest another. Remember, you're going to be teaching and instructing your children. Amen? Well, look at this. It says, Thou, therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? It says, Thou that preachest a man should not steal. What's the question? Does thou steal? It says, thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? It says, thou that maketh thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? In other words, God is presenting a thought that he's saying, listen, if you're going to teach others, especially instruct your children, God says, be consistent and make sure you're living what you're preaching. Brothers and sisters, one of the great turnoffs of young people today is when they hear messages from pulpits and they hear it either from the pulpit in the church or the altar at home and then they see a whole different character when a little crisis comes. One minute the father's telling the children that, you know, cussing and swearing is a bad thing, but next thing you know somebody crosses them on the highway or whatever the case may be and lo and behold that Egyptian language starts coming out of their own mouth. Are you following? God says, listen, If you are going to teach them, if you're going to instruct them, you must be what you want your children to be. There is no such thing as saying, oh, I want you to have a prayer life, but you have no prayer life. Oh, I want you to have a study life. You have no study life. Why don't you go out and share God's truth with others and you won't share God's truth? Why don't you eat healthy and here you are cheating and going to KFC, killing folks continually? You can't do that. We got to get to a point, brothers and sisters that we must be whatever we're counseling our children to be. This is serious. I'm telling you right now, because hypocrisy is one of the the things of the day right now in the church and in the home. And this thing burdened me all the time. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. I stand before you as one who has been called to preach, but I will tell you that 
ministers really struggle with these things as well. We're in the same boat, quite honestly, brothers and sisters. And sometimes you do more damage by putting us on these very high pulpits or putting us in these very high levels and looking at many of us like we're celebrities and all these other things. You have no idea what kind of damage that does to a man. And I'm serious. We are very simple men. We are men of like passions. We go through trials and challenges just like anybody else. And we need your prayers more than your praise. We are told in volume one of the testimony to the church, page 474, it says never, never compliment a minister to his face. Here it is that we often go to ministers. I know you're a man of God. And, you know, we typically say that just because you heard a good sermon. Brothers and sisters, a parakeet can preach a sermon. A monkey can go ahead and do certain things. Brothers and sisters, a person is not a person or a man or woman of God simply because they know how to take the words of God and combine them well together. I guarantee you Satan is using his hellish torch of false prophecy on many Adventist pulpits, and he is definitely putting together letters real nice and spellbinding many of God's people today. Even Satan can preach powerful sermons. Brothers and sisters, a Christian is a soul that has surrendered their lives to Christ Jesus. And that is something that is best demonstrated off the pulpit rather than on. We don't need praise. We don't need flattery. It does damage to us. I'm serious. We don't need that. Please don't do that. Because we already had Satan whisper in our ears earlier in the day how wonderful and great we are. Satan believes in flattery. We don't need flattery. We need prayers. Are you following? So we're going through this struggle together. And God is saying consistency is imperative if we are going to cooperate with heaven in seeing our children saved. Are you following? Amen. Amen. Now let's go ahead and consider another point. Another point, saving our children. One of the things that God is counseling us to do as it relates to saving our children is we also must understand the importance of spending time with them. I want you to notice this quotation here. It says, the Sabbath and the family were alike instituted in Eden. This is from Education, page 250. It says, and in God's purpose, they are indissolubly linked together. Did you know that? The Sabbath and the family, indissolubly linked together. It says, on this day more than on any other, it is possible for us to live the life of Eden on the Sabbath. Now, it goes on to say, it was God's plan. It was whose plan? It says it was God's plan for the members of the family to be associated in what? Work and study in worship and recreation. It was actually God's plan that the family was supposed to be associated in study, in work, in worship, and even in recreation. If you and I want to win our children, what's the, what's the major hindrance right now of why many of our children are falling? It's through associations. Is that right? Nine times out of ten, it's associations. They're finding more interest in hanging out with the wrong crowd than even hanging out with mother and father. Typically on a Sabbath, you hardly ever see families sitting together. You always got the young people group, a whole bunch of young people sitting aside. Do you know that's not God's plan? God says on the, on the Sabbath, it says that's the day especially that it should be like Eden. Brothers and sisters, you don't find, it was in Eden that separation of the family parties brought sin into the world. Did you catch what I just said? It was in Eden that separation of family parties brought sin into the world. Eve was not with her husband, and she was in a place where he was not, and when that serpent came, he beguiled her. 
You don't think the serpent is beguiling our children when we let them all sit together in corners? God knows what they're doing, and I do too. I see all that iPod activity and all that other stuff. Many a times, they're not, if they're whispering in each other's ears, they're not talking about, oh, how lovely Jesus is. Many a times, brothers and sisters, they're talking about the things of the world and all these other things, and it's only the mercy of God that they don't drop dead in the sanctuary like those children of Aaron. God is serious. If we are going to cooperate with Jesus in the winning of our children back to himself, God says you must understand, number one, get rid of all that bitterness. Let me take that away, Jesus says. Number two, be consistent. Don't don't preach things and teach things and educate on things that you yourself will not live. Number three, God says spend time with them. Don't spend time around them. Spend time with them. I remember one time I was sitting there talking to my little daughter, Jada. And, you know, my daughter, Jada, she's a very amazing person because I call Jada the brainiac. It's like she's a very intelligent person, way beyond her years. And she knows how to reason things through and all this stuff. And one day I was just sitting and just listening to her as she was just explaining certain things. She was like, Daddy, you know, I'm looking at the sanctuary and I see this. But then I asked to myself, well, what about this point here? And, and then when I looked at it, I thought to myself, well, Daddy, how could that be? It's such and such. And I'm just listening. I said, I can't believe this is my child. <laughs> I'm just listening to how she's talking. And it was like it was so phenomenal to not just be around her, but to be in her mind. And she and I are talking and looking at each other eye to eye. And I'm literally listening to her and absolutely enjoying my conversation. My son Jared and I, we just went to the Eastern Canada Youth Conference, GYC in Eastern Canada. And we were together there and we were spending that time in a hotel room together. And we were up sometimes till 1230, 1 o'clock in the morning, just talking, just talking. Not so much me, daddy, just preaching to him or these type of things. I just wanted to hear what's on his mind. And he was just telling me, daddy, you know, I was thinking about this and da, da, da. And, you know, and, 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 and God would give opportunities that if there was a little going off, you know, throwing a little redirect. Well, son, you know, it's, it's amazing how Jesus went through an experience like that and such and such. And then he'll, he'll get the point to say, okay, I need to redirect that thought. And, then, you know, and, and, and it was just beautiful to just commune with your children. Commune with them. Then it says Recreation. Man, I tell you, Jada, she always says, Daddy, can you please chase me? I mean, forget about it. She, once, once I come outside with sneakers on, she knows, all right, it's my opportunity. Daddy, can you chase me? Freeze tag all day long. I mean, they, they just love this stuff. Are you following? But brothers and sisters, and, and I had to learn that because I will hide in a room in a New York second and just stay there for hours just working on sermons, messages, research, trying to find out information. I'll do that in a second. And I realized it was a denial of self. I praise God for my wife. I really do, because she'll see me getting caught up in a zone, and sometimes she'll have to go ahead and tap me and say, look, let's take a walk. You're doing too much brain work. You know inspiration says brain work and body work and so on. And I, was like, and I can't rebut back to it, because whenever my wife gives me inspiration, I'm not going to fight with inspiration. <laughs> she said, honey, you know brain work, body work, da, da, da. I'm like, even though I want to give it back, I'm like, you're right. All right, let's go. <laughs> you know, and you start going. <laughs> oh, brothers and sisters, God says he wants our homes to be heaven on earth. And he says we can live the life of Eden, but you got to spend time with each other. I told my wife, I said, honey, it's been 15 years that we've been privileged to be husband and wife. But do you know what? I want to court you all over again. Just want to start it all over again. Because we used to have a rule that we said every once, at least once a month, we got to go out just you and I. And just, you know, once again, get that time to just know each other on an even deeper level. And sometimes work and all these things can, can begin to bog that down so much that you lose some of those things, brothers and sisters. But God says, this is what, this was my design. 
spending time together. We can see God win our children, but we must understand the importance of spending time together. I want you to think about this. In spending time together with our children, another thing that God tells us to do is that we must also understand that we need to cultivate the spirit of prayer. You see, another thing that God says, I think, think about this. We're talking about cooperating with the Lord. Number one, letting go of that bitterness, that anger and that resentment and so on. Letting Jesus take that away. Number two, be consistent. What you preach, you must be. Number three, what is number three? Spend time with them. Number four, cultivate a love for Christ in them. I want you to go to the book of Mark chapter one with me. Look at this. I was really excited this morning as God gave me all these beautiful points here because I I, I want to see the families experience that love of Christ in the family. Because there's so much happening in the world and even in the church that you want at least home to be a place that literally appears like heaven to you. And God says, I can do it. Now look at Mark chapter one. I want you to see a habit of Jesus. And Jesus actually learned this in childhood. And I'm gonna show you this. In Mark chapter one, Uh, Just to go through this very quickly, because I know my time is running. You know, Jesus is at Peter's uh, mother-in-law's house and, you know, she gets sick and obviously, uh, you know, he makes her well. And then after this, it was on a Sabbath and the sun is now set. And I want you to look at what the Bible says uh, in verse 32. It says, and at even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. So Jesus is practically working all night. I mean, I want you to imagine whatever city you live in, imagine all the people in that village come to your house after sunset on a Saturday night talking about we need help. Chances are you're going to have yourself a late night tonight, wouldn't you? Well, here it is that Christ, as he's doing his wonderful work there, it did not hinder him from keeping a certain habit. Notice what it says in verse 35. What was the habit of Jesus? It says, and in the morning, rising up what? A great while before day. It says he went out and departed into a solitary place. And what did he do? He prayed. He had that communion with God. This was a habit of Jesus. Did you know that? You see, one of the reasons why there's so many broken homes, you want to know one of the reasons why so many homes are broken? It's because many of homes today are homes that have no prayer. And where there's no prayer, you know the story, there's no power. You know, Ellen White, she talked about being in a home where there was no prayer. I want you to look at the comments of the prophet of God and what she said about this. She said, I know of nothing that causes me so great sadness as a prayerless home. She says, I do not feel safe in such a house for a single night. I mean, I want you to think about it. the prophet of God says, I don't even feel safe being in a house where there's no prayer. She says, I do not feel safe in being in such a house even for a single night. And she says, and were it not for the hope of helping the parents to realize their necessity and their sad neglect, I would not remain. It says the children showed the result of this neglect for the fear of God is not before them. Do you know one of the reasons why some of our children are so rambunctious is because there's no prayer in the home. Our homes are prayerless homes. Many of our homes are homes where it's just, you know, Lord, thank you for the food or Lord, please be with me as I drive and head to work. But there's no sincere communion with God. You know, the average person spends only approximately maybe two minutes in prayer a day. I want you to think about how would you feel if you had a friend that could only stand talking to you for two minutes within 24 hours? Would you feel special to that friend? Would you say that? Would you, do you think you would feel like, man, this, this person must really love me. They can only stand talking to me for two minutes a day. And I'm not putting a timeline on prayer, but we understand, brothers and sisters, that any relationship that is going to succeed does require some genuine communication. Amen? 
we must make our homes homes of prayer. We must cultivate those spiritual attributes in our homes, prayer, Bible study, and these things. Did you know that what we saw about Jesus in Mark 1.35, it was actually his habit from a youth. Look at this. I want you to consider this quote here. It says, it was in hours of solitary prayer that Jesus in his earth life received wisdom and power. Now, here goes God's instruction for you. You can start doing this today. Let the youth follow his example in finding at what? Dawn and twilight, a quiet season for communion with their father in heaven. So now what we did in our household, we said, all right, God says at dawn and at twilight that the children are to find a quiet place. And we are to teach them how to cultivate this time of time with God in communion. So what we do now is we said, all right, children at dawn and at twilight, we're going to go ahead and you're going to spend some time with God alone. And we want you to take some time to talk with the Lord. And we just give them the simple biblical structure of prayer. And then they go ahead and they do that on their own. So that way they're learning on their own how to cultivate a lifestyle of prayer, just like Jesus learned on his own. So even though there's family worship where the family gets together and we pray together and so on and so forth. But, you know, inspiration tells us that it's the prayer in the closet one on one with God that is the most potent time with God. So even though the family circle is necessary, we must teach the children to cultivate that one-on-one with God. And God loves us so much, he said, I'm going to give you even specific timelines. At dawn and at twilight. Education, page 259. At dawn and at twilight. Tell them to go there. And then, of course, you can give them Psalm 55, 17. Evening, morning. Those are dawn and twilight situations. And at noon will I pray and cry aloud. So we can literally set timelines with our children to help cultivate that time for prayer, that genuine growth with God, so that we can see great victories take place in their lives. There's one more that I'll be able to share with you. I wish I had time. I saw my time mark. There's a lot more I wanted to share. I wanted to talk about discipline and all these different things because these are very key things that God says I have given to my people so that they may know how to win their children. Well, go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to look at this. Here's another very important principle. Many of us as parents, we have failed on this. I know I have at times, and I'm thankful that God is helping us to redeem the time, and God can help you do it too. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says in verses 9 to 11, there was a problem in the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was proverbial for all sorts of different, very debasing sins. Uh, This one was in the case of individuals who were sleeping with their own uh, mothers. And in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, the Bible says, I wrote unto you, in an epistle, not to company with what? Fornicators. It says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Now understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that I'm instructing that you are not to keep company with those who practice fornication. But he says, I'm not limiting this counsel to just those in the world, because if it were true that you cannot keep company with those in the world, Paul says it would be to the point that you need to get out of the world because there's fornicators all over the world. Are you following? So therefore, look at now how he brings it about in verse 11. He says, but now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a what? A brother. So now we're dealing with those in the church. It says, if any man be called a brother, be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such and one know not to eat. So here it is that the Bible is instructing. It's not so much that 
it is just simply to avoid those who practice these illicit behaviors in the world. But God says, even if they're called a brother and they're practicing these things in the church, God says, don't even sit down and eat with them. Are you following? Now, this is a very important counsel because one of the reasons why many of our young people fall into all sorts of horrific sins is because of associations. Many a times, and this breaks my heart to say it, brothers and sisters, but it's associations in the church. Because we assume we're all family and we say, well, we're all family, so we're all Seventh-day Adventists, so we're all on the same page. And then what happens is parents like myself and, and many other parents, you know, there are times that we say, well, we can trust our brethren and we go ahead and let our children sit with their children. And next thing you know, sometimes my children will come back and they'll tell me about some R&B or rock and roll artist or something, some, some character in the world. And I'm saying, now, we don't have any TV in our house. We don't listen to any secular radio programs. At all. How in the world do you know about this character? Oh, that, that young boy was talking about it with me. You mean, when was he doing that? Oh, yeah, the, earlier this afternoon on Sabbath. And I'm saying, wait a minute. So you had somebody sitting next to you talking to you about ABC and such and such and such. And brothers and sisters, I mean, it breaks my heart to know that I've gotten to a point that according to God's counsel, that I have to be very judicious in even who I allow my children to sit with, even though we all call each other brothers and sisters. That hurts to have to do that. I don't want to do that, but at the same time, my children are my responsibility. And if a child demonstrates that they are not converted, it would be foolish for me as a parent to let my children sit with them anyhow. That's spiritual suicide. So therefore, because I love my children, I have to scrutinize. I have to ask questions. I have to consider. Sometimes I have to walk by and I have to see what they're talking about. I have to pay attention because I got a guard. Brothers and sisters, you must understand you can't trust everybody. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We can be brethren in the church and everything else, but we got to get to a point that unless we see fruit first, we can't trust everybody. Sometimes my children, daddy, can we ride in the car with this person or whatever? And we have to say, no, you can't. Because we don't know what kind of music they're going to play. They call themselves the remnant. They say they're in present truth. And next thing you know, they're blasting Kirk Franklin out of their car and all this profanity with the gospel. All this strange fire. And it's coming out of their cars. And my, you know, my child comes singing some song. I'm like, where'd you learn that song? Oh, I learned it in Sister So-and-So's car. Present truth, Sister So-and-So? Yes. You get what I'm saying? Guard the associations. Do you remember when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt? You remember that Egyptians came out too, right? Let me show you how deep God is with the instructions. You can write down in your notes for time's sake, Deuteronomy 23, 7 and 8. But I want you to look at this. This is what the prophet of the Lord says. The mixed multitude, that's what they call those those people who came out of Egypt on the Egyptian side. It says the mixed multitude that had accompanied Israel from Egypt were not permitted. Literally, when God took them out of Egypt and he broke up the four quarters with the children of Israel in the camps, God told the, 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 those, the mixed multitude, he said, you can't even be in the midst of these camps. Look at what God says. He says, the mixed multitude that had accompanied Israel from Egypt were not permitted to occupy the same quarters with the tribes. It says, but were to abide upon the outskirts of the camps and their offspring were to be excluded from the community until the third generation. God says, I don't want you too close to my people for three generations. That's how serious God was about protecting his flock and making sure, because if you study Israel, 
if you really study Israel, remember, who was the chief leaders that kept bringing them into all the different apostate activities? It was the mixed multitude. So God was wise when he said, I want you to, I, I'm going to create barriers. I don't want you to even come in their community until the third generation. You can't dwell with them. They can have certain interactions, but it had to be guarded interactions. But there was, no, there was not going to be any trustful communion one with another, at least until the third generation. God took that thing seriously. And brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. If I do have any trial, if I do have any trials in my home as it relates to things that my children may have learned and so on and so forth, I'm telling you the truth. Nine times out of ten, if perhaps ten times out of ten, as best as my mind can remember, it was something they learned from other children in the Seventh-day Adventist church, specifically present truth circles. And that's when God had to get it across to my wife and my, 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 my mind that, look, we, we, we just cannot trust everybody. We just can't afford to do that. That's too much of a risk with our children. Are you following? So parents, you got to guard those associations. you got to be mindful. you got to be careful to make sure that nothing takes place where we put our children at risk. There's some things you can lose in life and get back again. But there's some things you can lose, and once you lose it, it's lost. I am sorry. I'm not going to take any more risk with my children. I have failed on several points, and God has forgiven me and granted me mercy. And praise the Lord, he is allowing me to redeem time. And brothers and sisters, I'm dead serious about redeeming it. Guard the associations of your children. All right, let's go to Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. We're going to ask God to give us grace to see how we can get more of this, these things done. Because I had, a, I had a whole, this is a whole study. I had to cut out a lot. But there, there's a whole study on what the young people are supposed to do. So right now I'm talking to the parents or the parental, uh, those with parental influence. But there's a whole section just on what the young people need to be doing. Now, obviously, we're not going to have time to go through that. But... I believe somehow, someway, the Lord will get these things to us. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's trust God that he'll get these things to us. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs 22, I have several verses. In fact, write these down for me. This, this will help at least my conscience. Proverbs 22 and verse 15. Then I want you to write down Proverbs 23 and verse 13. Then I want you to write down Proverbs 23. Okay, Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. And then Proverbs 29, verse 15. Now, all of these deal with the rod. There are times, brothers and sisters, where spankings, beatings, whippings. I don't like the word beatings because it, you know, it just brings across a different thought. But in all of these verses, the Bible literally talks about. Now, the Bible, the King James Version actually used the term beating. It says beat with the rod. So, you know, when people try to say, oh, the rod, well, the rod was symbolic of, of, of correction. No, you don't, you don't beat somebody with correction. Are you following? You know what I'm saying? With verbal correct, you don't beat somebody with it. When the Bible says to beat with the rod, it's talking about a physical contact with the body and the, and the instrument. It is a beating with the rod. So this idea about, you know, only timeouts and this idea about only uh, just keep saying you bad person, you shouldn't have done that and all this other stuff. Throw that out the window, brothers and sisters. And what I mean by that, let me clarify. What I mean by that is don't say that that's all of the discipline a child needs. There is a time where the rod is necessary, a physical contact with the body and an instrument. Now, in our household, we have learned that when we study the Bible and we study about God's hands, 
We often find that God's hands was used as something that was very uh, tender, very gentle. You know, the Lord's hand is not slack and, you know, so on. Or God reaching his hand is not shortened. Um, You know, God, when he talks about his hand being used, is typically reaching out in tenderness to those who are lost and trying to bring them back to himself. So we made a rule in our household that if we discipline our children, we will not use our hands. We want our hands to be understood as instruments of tenderness and mercy, and the list goes on. But we ha- so therefore, we chose an object, because when the Bible speaks about the rod, it is often spoken about as an instrument or an object. That object is not listed as one thing or whatever, you, you know, whatever that object is. But what we did was we said, all right, well, here's the rod, that object. And that object, the children understand, to say, that's a disciplinary object. When they look at our hands, they know that the hands are to function for this. When they look at that rod, they know that that is an, a disciplinary object. So therefore, for their minds, they're able to differentiate. One of the things that hurts me so bad is when I see a parent sometimes just reaching out to their children just to maybe grab them or something, and the child goes like this, you know, naturally, because they now understand that hand to be an instrument that's always for beating, beating, beating. You get what I'm saying? So therefore, in our household, we said, well, we don't want to go ahead and use our hands for that purpose. We'll go ahead and use a, you know, an object. Now, look at what it says here about inspiration as it relates to dealing with the rod or whippings is the term that Sister White uses. It says, child guidance 250, whipping may be necessary, but notice what it says in the underline. When other resorts fail. So therefore, the spanking or the whipping is something that should not be the first initiative. Even though there are times where it is necessary for disciplinary purposes, it should not be the first initiative. It should be when the other initiatives have failed. So timeout is okay. It's okay sometimes to say you need some time to yourself to consider. When, when God gave instructions to Moses and God said, hey, I want you to go ahead and instruct the children of Israel on how to keep the Sabbath. And if they break it, this is what happens. You remember what the story? There was a brother picking up sticks on the Sabbath, right? And you remember what they had to do? They had to go ahead and quarantine him, the Bible says. They had to put him in a quarantine, give him some time, give themselves some time, so then they could go ahead and receive instruction, and then they could go ahead and initiate the discipline. That's a powerful example of what God is teaching us. When we spank, it should not be something where we immediately run and say, you did what? That's it. Pow! And we just start lighting them up because they're going to misunderstand a lot of things. See, look at the council. Whipping may be necessary when other resorts fail. Yet, she should not use the rod if it is possible to avoid doing so. It says, but if milder measures prove insufficient, it says punishment that will bring the child to its senses should in love be administered. Frequently, one such correction will be enough for a lifetime. Do you know if if a child gets disciplined with the rod, hopefully once it should be enough for a lifetime. It should be enough. It says to show the child that he does not hold the lines of control. But now let's notice the next point of the quote here. It's very important. It says, and when this step becomes necessary, talking about using the rod, it says the child should be seriously impressed with the thought that this is not done for the gratification of the parent. It says, or to indulge arbitrary authority, but for the child's own Good. That's why you don't want to spank a child out of anger or impulse, because they'll miss that whole lesson right there. If you just say, you did what? That's it, pal. And, and, and that's the end of it? That's how I grew up. That's the home I grew up in. You did what? That's it, pal. And that was it. That was the end of it. And brothers and sisters, it didn't induce one inch of Christ-likeness in me. 
Not one inch. All it did was make me angry. All it did was make me think my father enjoys beating me. That was literally what came to my mind. Now, when we do it right, we're helping the child consider. We're talking with them first. We're praying with them. And we're helping them understand why we have to discipline them with that rod. Then they get disciplined with the rod. And then we pray with them afterwards and reassure them of our love. That's when the child will be able to say, Mommy and daddy did this because they love me and not because they're angry at me or hate me or any of these other type of elements that is consistent in many homes today. God says, this is my instruction. So notice, he should be taught that every fault uncorrected will bring unhappiness to himself and will displease God. That's why this idea of watching children do wrong and just walk by and say, oh, they're just such bad children. Let's just ignore it. Do you know that's the clearest demonstration that you hate your child? That's the clearest demonstration when you don't discipline them. And again, I'm not talking about discipline with a rod. I'm just saying any discipline. When you just see them do wrong. And brothers and sisters, start when the child's young. See that precious little baby right there my sister's holding? Start when they're young like that. I'm serious. You know why? Because when a little baby like that goes like this, you hold a little baby in front of your face and that baby goes and hits you in your face. We say, oh, that's so cute. Look at the baby. He slapped me in my face. But then when that baby goes from infant, and now that baby's five years old, and that five-year-old comes up to you and goes, huh. All of a sudden, we say, child, what's wrong with you? And, you know, we're ready to get on them now, right? But the child says, you thought it was cute when I was one. You see, children can't get with that concept. So, therefore, you correct the child right from the very beginning. If it's wrong, it's wrong. This is, this is something that's really crazy. We put a miniskirt on a little baby, and we say, oh, look how cute they look at that miniskirt. But then when they become 15, girl, you know, that's inappropriate. That's immodest. So don't put miniskirts on them now. Are you following, saints? Oh, God is such a reasoning God. He's saying if we just follow these counsels while they're young, we can save ourselves from a thousand perils. These are God's counsels. All right, my time is up. Brothers and sisters, do you get the point? We see that there are some several steps here. There's a lot more. But here's what I'm encouraging you to do. You're going to go ahead and go home and you're going to make Adventist home your textbook. Oh, man, I tell you. You're going to make Adventist home your textbook. You're going to make child guidance your textbook. And you're going to make ministry of healing your textbook. Brothers and sisters, I believe with this wonderful threefold trio, along with your wonderful Bible. Brothers and sisters, I believe God can show us how to have little heavens on earth. And you will find that if we cooperate with God in these principles, you'll start seeing the Lord just turn things around. You'll see God just start turning things around, turning things around. There was an elder at my church. We were teaching some of these things. We were going over these studies. And, and uh, man, I tell you, he's a really nice guy, very genuine man. And he came to me and he, and he said, Brother Lemon, you know, tears in his eyes. And he said, Brother Lemon, he says, you know, uh, my children are full-blown adults. They're out of my home. I have not followed these counsels. And he said, what can I do? And I looked that elder in the eyes. We were both fellow elders together. And I said, elder, you do what God says to do. God says, redeem the time. That's all you can do. You can't rewind it. But you can redeem it. You can say from this day forward, I'll be what God has called me to be to my children. He says, you know what? I'm going to ask God to show me how to do that. And, you know, a couple of months went by, and I saw him, and he said, Brother Lemmy, he says, you wouldn't believe it. 
He says, I called my son. Now, this son happened to be, I think he was in his 20s, if not 30s. He says, I called my son. And he said, I called him and I talked with him and I said, listen, you know, we used to go out and we sometimes would take boat rides together. And he says, um, would you be willing to let me as your dad take you on a boat ride? I'm talking to him now, a 30-year-old son. Can I take you on a boat ride? You know what his son said? Dad, I would love to do that. They got together. They went on a boat ride. And he said the communion that they had was so sweet. And it was like both of them with tears in their eyes were just like, you know, I, I miss I miss this. And he said that God did something wonderful in their relationship from that day onward. And today they have the greatest relationship. The majority of my life, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't understand all these truths. And like I told you last night, I lived the majority of my life as an absolute demon, devil. But when God got control of my heart and he brought me into a true conversion experience, I remember my father after my mother died. It took my mother's death for my father to give his heart to Jesus. My mother was a seed. Well, my father gave his heart to Jesus and, and he apologized for all the abuses and all the things that he did that was wrong. And I remember I would come and, and there would be times that I'd just see dad and we would just start talking. And we would just talk about all sorts of things. And I didn't even realize that I am having a dynamic of a relationship with my father that I never had before. And it was like God allowed us to just redeem lost time. You know, again, the time was gone. I couldn't rewind it, but we were redeeming. We were just from that day forward. And I was so thankful that before he died, August 6, 2011, that I had complete peace and no resentment in my heart. And he had complete peace and no resentment in his heart because he knew that all was well between him and his son and him and his Savior. Brothers and sisters, it's not too late. It's not too late. There'll be some battles and there'll be some trials because you know that Satan sees the young people as the solution. He sees them as part of that wonderful solution to the problems in the church, the problems in this world. So there'll be a battle. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. You're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And so if you are willing to say today, you know what, Lord? Whether as a child or whether as an adult, I want to redeem the time. I want to cooperate with God. I want his will to be done. And I dare not fulfill my own will. I want to see how my home can become a little heaven on earth. If that's your desire, would you stand with me? Brothers and sisters, when you run into your challenges, just remember that which is impossible with man is possible with God. Don't ever lose hope. Don't ever lose hope. We can do all things, all things through Christ who strengthens us. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we are thankful for these wonderful counsels that you have given to us. Thank you, dear God, that you are showing us how we can redeem the time because the days truly are evil. Father, we have a generation of youth today that have become so disconnected from God, so disconnected from their parents and from their homes. 
but you have a plan to show us how everything can be brought back together if simply we would cooperate with thee. Lord, I pray on behalf of every parent that you'll give them courage, give them strength, assure them of your love. Lord, I pray that you will do miracles on their behalf. May their faith themselves be increased by watching how your salvation shall come to their children. Lord, I pray for all of our young brothers and sisters. Teach them to be angels to their parents rather than demons. And Lord, I pray may they be helpers. May they be those whom parents can look upon and say, truly, this is my beloved son and my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And Father, we are grateful that as you unite our homes together, by your grace, when you shall come, it won't be just us, but it will be our households that will be able to say, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. Keep us faithful unto this end and keep this hope ever before our eyes. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It's our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.